We all have our heroes. We all have those that we look up to, that we admire, uh, that we want to be like, maybe even become. It begins when we're children. When I was young, maybe still today, I don't know. When I was younger, it was uh, Steve Austin, the $6 million man. That's who my hero was. It begins as a child, as our young and when we're young. We don't really, though, here's the funny thing, we don't really outgrow that. We don't really ever outgrow our, our the aspiration, the longing to, to have a hero, to look up and to, to be able to, to, to want to be, become like someone. And for you, it might be a, a sports figure or a, a pop star or a, a politician or an artist or um, an athlete or an, an author. Um, there's something about them, there's something, some character, some, some characteristic, some quality about them that you find to be winsome and compelling. If only you could be like them, if those only, the, only those qualities and characteristics you could have for your, yourself, you too wish that you could be, I don't know, maybe it's, it's rich and beautiful and talented and influential. And there's nothing wrong, there's nothing, nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But the one who made us knows us, and he knows as, well, as okay and admirable maybe as those aspirations might be, they're not high enough. We're made for more, much, much more. Uh, he transforms. Our Lord transforms our, our very idea, the very concept, the very definition of what it is. To be heroic, to have a hero, uh, and all those categories. Let's take a look at that together. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are moving on in our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. We are entering into, just broaching, uh, just breaching, I guess would be the better word, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, moving into the Beatitudes this morning. This is an introduction to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12, uh, just in giving an overview of what's there, and the plan is in the coming weeks to take them one at a time, a series of those eight Beatitudes. So we're going to, it's just too much there, too much depth there to fly through it. Um, so if you're trying to find it, you haven't gotten there yet, this is the first of the four Gospels, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John, Matthew is where we are, Matthew 5. Verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me now, if you would. O Lord, as the psalmist said, and said so, so well, your testimonies are wonderful. So our souls long to keep them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. We open our mouths and pant out of longing for your commandments. Oh, would you turn to us and be gracious to us as your way is with those who love your name. Oh, would you keep steady our steps according to your promises and let no iniquity get dominion over us. Oh, we thank you for this text, for this passage for what has been called the Sermon on the Mount and for the Beatitudes that set the tone for that. And we thank you for this this time today and what we pray will be a stretch of days to come in this study and we pray that you would bless it richly, that you would help us to see what is here, the significance of what is here, the gospel, the hope, the hope that we have in Christ that is here. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount has been called by no few commentator I was looking at just this past week. Perhaps both the um, most well-known of all of Jesus' teachings and the least understood of all Jesus' teachings at the same time. Not a very good combination when you think about it from that, from that standpoint. Um, the context in terms of when this was taught, where this was taught, to whom it was taught. Let me give you a sense of geography. So this is on a, likely on a hillside just above a site called Tabga today, just a, a little bit northwest of the town of Capernaum, uh, on a, a ridge of hills looking out over the Sea of Galilee. It's just a short walking distance from the town of Capernaum when it said a hill is mentioned, a mountain is mentioned here. We're almost... We're quite certain this is the site. This is the place. It's something of a natural amphitheater, actually, because of this hill and the, the sort of circular shape of that area such that the crowds could easily have come and sat and listened to Jesus without any need of you know, voice amplification because of just the topography of the area. So that's sort of you know where all this is happening. When is all this happening? In the flow of, of Jesus' ministry, in the flow of... Matthew's narrative. Well, it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has made, if things are underway, his message is quite clear. We looked at this some weeks ago. Chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the, that's the essence of Jesus' message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there is a response that is imperative that comes with that. He has already, at this point, called his disciples, reading on through Matthew 4, uh, they have begun to travel through this area, this province, this Roman province known as Galilee. Word is spreading. His popularity is growing. Who is he speaking to? Who's there? Who's, who's listening? Well, Matthew tells us, verse 1, two groups of people, actually, seeing the crowds, that's the broad masses, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. These words are primarily for his disciples. They are first for his followers. 
Uh, that is to say, everything that we're about to, that we have already read and would be reading, if you read on through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, is to, it's, it's not really intended to answer the question, how do I become a disciple? It assumes that. It's more, how do I be one? What does that look like? It, it presupposes that you know God as your Father and you have submitted to Jesus as your King. These words are written primarily, first and foremost, to those who are children of the Father and subjects, citizens of the kingdom. As I said a minute ago, uh, the message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That then uh, means, we've looked at this over the last few weeks, the, the, the rule and reign of God has come and is coming um, we live in between the times, this time of tension in the now and the not yet. And Jesus is addressing the question that begs to be asked. What does it look like? What does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom? What does it mean to be living in, under the rule and reign of the king now? Well, then I think we would do well to hear and heed what the king has to say. This is... Uh, as I said earlier, an introduction to the Beatitudes. I'm not even going to attempt to plumb the depths of you know, everything that's here. It's an introduction. It's an introduction to an introduction. It's an introduction to the introduction to the larger Sermon on the Mount. And, and what we see here actually is ample cause, implicitly and explicitly, for three things. And this is in your outline, the main points. First, to listen to Jesus as our teacher. Secondly, ample cause to look to Jesus as our guide. And thirdly, to trust in Jesus as our Savior. Those three things, building in that direction. Let's look at these one at a time, uh, in, in turn together. So first, we have ample cause, ample reason, just in what we see here, just if you take a look at it, listening to Jesus as our teacher. How do we, how, why do I say that? Well, you consider the allusions that Matthew's clearly making here back to Moses, who for some roughly 1,500 years up to this point has been regarded as the great teacher, the lawgiver for Israel. Now, you, you see this just in how Matthew writes this, some intentionality on this. Uh, it's all taking place on a mountain. And Matthew is very intentional about drawing our, our attention, intentional about drawing our attention to the fact that this is taking place on a mountain. Um, just as, it seems that, that the idea is that, that we're trying, he's trying to get our clue in that just as Moses ascended to Mount Sinai to then deliver the law, the Ten Commandments and, and the rest of, of the law, so also Jesus ascends this mountain to deliver to his followers another kind of law, his own teaching. But it's not just that. It's not just taking place on a mountain. You notice the way Matthew writes it here. There's a definite, definite article here. The mountain, which is kind of funny because there's no reference made to a specific place. So again, Matthew, his, it seems to be some intentionality towards stirring up a memory in the first century reader, predominantly Jewish readers at the time, 
stirring up a memory and drawing attention to the fact that of what's transpiring here. There's allusion to Moses. So certainly there seems to be something along the lines, a need, a need being shown forth here, our listening to Jesus as our teacher, but not just with that, this allusion to Moses, but also just with the authority of Jesus as conveyed here. First of all, think of the drama unfolding. Again, look at how Matthew describes it. Just as in, verse 1, just as in rabbinic custom of the day, Jesus sits down. He sits down and proceeds to teach. But Matthew goes further, kind of making you hang on the edge just, just a little bit. Look at what he says. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth. Well, of course, who doesn't, if you're going to you know, speak, that you kind of have to do that. But he specifically says that he opens his mouth. Get, setting the stone for something, something powerful that's about to come and taught them saying. And now what did he say? Well, then you look at what he said. And what he says are things that on the one hand are absolutely essential marks and characteristics of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus. And at the same time are completely unnatural for every one of us. And, and you live that way, and even in any poor way, and you're going to stand out in the world. And the crowds get this. By the time they're done listening to this sermon that, that may have taken place over the course of days, you know, this could be a, a collection of teaching. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, and listen to how the crowds respond. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus doesn't cite anyone. He has no need for footnotes. He has no need for a bibliography. He is the authority. And they recognize that. And they recognize that everything he's saying has a, a resonance to it. There's truth to it. There's wisdom to it. There's depth to it. And they just find it to be completely and utterly compelling. The point being, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to listen to the king as our teacher. We would do well, just think about how to run with this, we would do well, at least in this case, to walk with the crowd and ask the question, who is this? Who, who is this who would speak in such ways, with such wisdom and such power? But going further, going further, and I alluded to this a second ago, and I come back to it, just wrestling in, with, with the fact, the, the, the wondrous fact, that on the one hand, what he says, just in the Beatitudes, these, these eight things, are so compelling they're so beautiful, they're so winsome, and yet at the same time, compelling and yet we're repelled by them, unnatural, we don't know quite what to do with them. What, what do we make of that? But on the one hand, we're drawn to them, and on the other hand, we know them to be so unnatural. What does that tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about him and what he knows of us? And how he's made us. Again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to listen to this king as our teacher. But going further, also, this is the second point. We need to look to him as our guide. 
You know, listen to him as our teacher. Also look to him as our guide. He gives us, he himself, let's put it this way, Jesus is himself a living demonstration of the Beatitudes. He is a flesh and blood embodiment of every one of these eight things. You see, he doesn't just give us a description. He doesn't just give us a list. He doesn't just throw down a set of abstract concepts. But rather, he serves and lives as a true model for us of what it looks like. He lives these things out for us to then be able to see what this could look like. And there are numerous examples of this throughout the course of his ministry. Now, I'm going to just fly through the eight and just show you just real quickly and over the coming eight weeks, we'll be delving into this just a little bit more. But just real quickly, I want to just sort of highlight these as we look at the list. So, thinking in terms of, if you want to divide up the list into two groups, is our relationship towards God, the first four, and roughly our relationship towards one another, the others, the second set of four. Or if you want to think of it in terms of vertical first and horizontal second, here you go, first four. He was poor in spirit completely and utterly dependent upon his father. He mourned sin and the impact, shattering effect upon his creation. He was meek of heart, never asserting his own rights. He hungered and thirsted that the law would be loved and obeyed. Merciful. You know, all of his miracles were done out of a sense, an impulse of mercy, compassion for those, especially in those healing miracles that we see again and again. Pure in heart, oh my goodness, blameless, without blemish. No one could accuse him of anything. The peacemaker the resolver of any and every conflict that you can imagine, if we would but heed and hear His Word. And my goodness, lastly, was He not persecuted for righteousness' sake? You see? You see? He is the living embodiment of everything He said. He's not a, like, I would be and am a man who fails to practice what he preaches. It's not Jesus. There is no inconsistency there. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. The kingdom has come. I'll say it again. The kingdom has come. We need to look to the king as our guide. And oh, how we need a guide. Not just a teacher. We need that. But not just a teacher, we need to be shown. We need to be taken by the hand and, and, and shown. Some of you have seen those pictures. I'm going off script now. Some of you have seen those pictures from our, our mission trip to Cherokee, and you've seen the craziness. If you look at the ones where we were doing the work project and the underskirting around that double-wide trailer and trying to put the, the, the foam insulation around that thing, and you see those pictures of me, me, those of you who know me, me, holding the instructions, leading the construction team. It was insane. 
And But I will tell you, we needed somebody to show us. We didn't have anybody to show us. All we had were the instructions, and they were poorly written. But once we had a sense, and the, my team members, I hope, would back me up on this, once we had a sense of what to do, once that first panel and second and third panel had been put in, and we had a sense as to how to do the track, we had a picture, right? It flows. It flows. Because then you've been, you've been, it's been said and shown. Told and shown. Show and tell. I don't know. We need a guide. You think in terms of the times we live in, the turbulent times that we live in. Some people say this is right. Others say this is right. Some say this is wrong. Others say this is wrong. And then we can't even agree on how to do that which we say is right. The right way to do the right thing. We are in desperate need of a guide. And, and maybe to some degree that, that little four letters from a few years ago that was on everyone's bumper sticker and bracelet, WWJD, what would Jesus do based on Charles Sheldon's classic In His Steps? It's helpful to a degree, but it only gets you but so far. What you really need to be asking is another one, and it's not quite as snappy. WWDJD, what would a disciple of Jesus do? And a disciple of Jesus needs to look to Jesus as to what to do. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, how we need to look to the king as our guide. Now, I would be oh so remiss if I stopped at two points. I would just, we would be completely set up for miserable failure at this point. Because who among us, who among us, can really abide by that teaching and follow really in his steps? None of us. So yes, we need to listen to him as our teacher and look to him as our guide. But you know what that points us ultimately towards? Is trusting in him as our savior. Absolutely so. The finished work of Jesus on our behalf. First, dying in our place. As R.C. Sproul put it so well, we have, every one of us, committed cosmic treason against our Creator. We have turned our back on Him, gone our own way, as the prophets said, and so in our self-dependence, self-determining, and self-righteousness, we therein are due eternal death. That is what we are due. Jesus took what we are due in full on Himself at the cross. He died in our place, but not just that. It doesn't stop there. He also lived in our place. He died the death we deserve to die and lived the life we should have lived. He took what we deserve and gave what He purchased. His Record of righteousness, his record of a flawless, blemishless obedience transferred, reckoned to ours. His beatitudinal life is ours, our, on our record now. How does the Father see you as he sees the Son? He has lived fully 
in your stead, just as He has died fully in your stead. And that is a finished, once-for-all work. It is done. Nothing can be added to it. Ever. But you know what it began? A work underway. Because He's not finished. He's not done with us yet. He is determined to make us what we are. He is determined to restore the broken image, to instill the family traits, to make us beatitudinal people, to make us these things, these eight virtues, instill them, impress them in us. And here's the beauty of it. This is not a project he's going to get tired of and set aside when he gets enough frustrated with it. He is never going to give up. He is more determined than you are, than we are, that these traits, these virtues, these characteristics be worked into our lives. And it doesn't matter what obstacle he meets and what obstacle you think is too big. He is, shall I say, bound and determined to bring it to pass. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need to trust in the king as our savior. Now that's good news for all. For all who will have ears to hear. But it leads me to one last thing before we move to the conclusion. And that is how you read the list. This is not an opportunity as you read this list of eight virtues. This is not an opportunity for you to beat yourself up as to how you fall short. This is intended to be an occasion to praise the one who so wondrously displayed them in himself and who so graciously promises to transform you that we, you, I, all of us might be those things. That's what this is ultimately about. That's where this ought to be taking us as far as how we read this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, that we would trust in the king as our savior. Let me wrap this up. All right, heroes. Heroes are big these days. It's big money these days. Just go to the movies. Ant-Man is uh, leading in the box office right now. Um, I looked it up. It's true. That, of course, follows just a few weeks on the heels of the sequel to The Avengers, right? Which made a ton of money. That then followed on the heels of a whole slew of standalone stories like Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and the Hulk, eh, uh, Spider-Man, there are more coming. That wasn't a slide on the Hulk. It's just in the movies were lame. Um, others are coming in DC Comics, not to be outdone. There's a lot of money in this, you know. Uh, Not to be outdone has done the reboot, the remake of Batman and Superman, and now you may know next year what planet have you been on if you don't know this. They're going head-to-head, which then will be the start of a series of Justice League movies. And why? Because there's so much money in this. And it's not because of the fanboys. It's not because of the nerdy guys who 
all that other stuff there. But it's, it's, it's not just because of nostalgia, you know, old guys like me who want to go see the stuff on the big screen. It's not just because of that. It's something deeper. There's something else going on here that sends us in droves to buy these tickets to watch these stories on those big screens. What is it? What is it? We have a hunger for a hero. Down deep within every human heart, there's something, something that resonates with the idea, the hope of a hero. Not just a hero. The hero. Or as Ian DeGree put it, the hero of the heroes. Jesus. Jesus, who again transforms utterly from ground up our idea of what the heroic really is and transforms us from the inside out, making us more like himself. That very one who on that hillside one day years ago sat down, gathered his disciples, spoke these words. The hero of the heroes. Like I said, this is just an introduction to the introduction. May the Lord bless the study in these weeks to come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, and we don't mean this tritely, thank you for all you are and do and have done and will be doing. Our need is so great. We need you as teacher. We are in the dark without a compass. We need you as our guide. We are so slow to learn. We need you as our Savior. We are so hard of heart. Needing all that you have done in our stead. As we begin this series, as we even reflect on the, this past week, as we prepare for what's ahead in the week to come, may we learn from you, look to you, lean into you. And as we sang earlier, we beseech thee, hear us. And we ask that you would now prepare our hearts as we come to the table. And thank you for your hosting all that we are celebrating now. Amen. I'm going to ask my fellow officers to come forward.